This is Mark Stein. After three years in COVID, Stan, it's time to get out of town. So join me on the 2023 Mark Stein Cruise, sailing from Italy to Croatia, Montenegro, Greece, for a full week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Australia, Britain, Europe, and we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along. December 16th, 2022. It is 3 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That's 4 p.m. in the Canadian Maritimes, half past four in Newfoundland and beyond the Americas, 8 p.m. in London, 9 p.m. in Paris, 10 p.m. in Kiev. I don't have the wind power to do the full elongated uh, vowel of Kiev, uh, for reasons I'll get to in a minute. The 11th hour in Moscow, the 11th hour and a half in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half hour time zone. 1.45 a.m. in Kathmandu for all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter hour time zone. 4 a.m. in Singapore and Honkers, 7 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne, 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning in Auckland. And lunchtime beyond in His Majesty's dominions across the Pacific and indeed any uh, non-dominions of His Majesty as well. We're happy to have you along too. I expect you've uh, been wondering uh, where I've been these uh, last couple of weeks. I might as well spit it out. I'm too medicated to manage... Uh, artful evasions, not not because uh, I can't do the lie, but uh, if you're over-medicated, it's hard remembering uh, the lie. I'll be like those incompetent Hollywood and Broadway execs who can never remember what lie they told you at the last meeting. Uh, so I had uh, two heart attacks, and because I didn't recognize the first one as such, the second was rather more severe. That's the bad news. Uh, the good news is that the first one occurred when I was in London. In fact, if you chance to see that day's Mark Stein show, uh, with hindsight, I don't look quite right in uh, close-ups. So by not recognizing it as a heart attack, I deftly avoided being one of those stories we feature on the show every couple of nights about people in the UK calling emergency and being left lying down in the street for 15, 16 hours uh, before the ambulance shows up. I'm not saying that that's what would have happened to me. 
but when your ticker is already stressed out from the heart attack, you don't want to add to the stress by wondering if the ambulance is likely to arrive on the same business day. Uh, so as I said, because I failed to recognize the first heart attack as such, I got on a plane and had my second heart attack in France, La République Française. Uh, the uh, I've been spending, I'm just saying La République Française because I've been spending a lot of time talking French. Uh, in fact, I've hardly, I think this is my first uh, sustained uh, <laughs> uh, attempt at speaking English in in. Um, in a, in a fortnight, uh, I found it actually very relaxing speaking French. Uh, my French has immensely improved. Not you know when it comes to making amusing uh, dinner party conversation in French, I'm still completely non-fluent in that. But when it comes to uh, emergency room diagnosis uh, in French, I'm absolutely brilliant at that. I'm completely fluent in that. Um, anyway, the French spend about the same per capita as the UK on healthcare, and they get much better outcomes. For one thing, they have twice as many beds. Uh, so when you get to the hospital, you don't have that thing they do in Britain where the ambulance is idling in the parking lot for seven or eight hours waiting for a bed to open up in emergency. You know, I talk about healthcare from a theoretical point of view quite a lot, have done ever since really Obamacare got going. Um, but uh, it's interesting to be able to talk about it from a practical point of view. It was about 25 seconds from the door of the small rural hospital to the slab and getting hooked up to all the machines. I've never had that happen that quickly anywhere. Uh, including America, where there's always that business of seeing whether your Blue Cross Blue Shield covers you for a broken leg or just a sprained ankle and all that kind of thing. So I thank Audrey, my delightful and très charmante infirmière d'urgence, for her speediness. And uh, once uh, she and the lads had stabilized me, I was loaded into the ambulance for the one-hour ride to the specialist cardiac unit in the big town, uh, with Audrey accompanying me in the ambulance, she told me that I'd been within 15 minutes of death. So hold that thought, because undoubtedly within a week or so, I'll be telling people I was within 10 minutes of death, five minutes of death, two minutes. Uh, like Irving Caesar, the great lyricist of Just a Gigolo and Tea for Two. The first time I met him, he told me he and George Gershwin wrote Swanee in 10 minutes. The next time I saw him, he told me he wrote it in five minutes. Then it was three minutes, two minutes. That's the way it's going to go with my near-death experience. It's going to get a lot nearer in uh, the days ahead. I'm not in great shape. Um, I've been forbidden to fly back to New Hampshire and depart the custody of my doctors for a few weeks yet. Uh, so I'm here in France, and I'll be here through Christmas and New Year. If you have to be detained in some country uh, or other, there are worse places than France. I could be stuck in Belarus. I'm not, uh, no offense to any Belarusians listening. Uh, peace on earth, goodwill to all men. I love Belarusians. Uh, I'm just sad. Uh, I do have some uh, tough decisions to make um, uh, because I'm meant to avoid stress. And doing something like Clubland Q&A is inherently stressful, as is doing something like the Mark Stein Show. I know that because uh, I've, I've spent most of the time since we last spoke wired up. You know, I've had electrodes on every conceivable bit of me, and you can actually watch it in real time. You know, I wait for the 
nurses to leave the room and then I reach under the mattress and find where I've hidden the laptop and I flip it open and I see something about Kevin McCarthy uh, announcing his big plan to read the US Constitution on the floor of Congress and I can see the numbers on the machines. This is just Kevin McCarthy doing some pointless gesture politics that, you know, I should be able to laugh off. It's, you know, he's waving that constitution at me. I know it's a provocation, uh, but even though it's just a complete joke and it's rather pitiful, I can still see the way suddenly the numbers are all uh, shooting up into the red zone. Um, so my docs have been uh, trying to keep me away from uh, the laptop. Um, so for all your questions, if there's any actual news from the last two weeks, you know, say any uh, late breaking house uh, race results from the US midterms, I'm blissfully unaware of them and enjoying it immensely. Um, but this, this, uh, the reason I'm mentioning this, this is really too philosophical a point for a uh, an emergency room discussion with doctors and nurses. Um, but for me, the really stressful uh, thing about life in the 21st century is that what is known once you know it cannot be unknown. Uh, I ran into an actress friend of mine a couple of weeks back. Many of you would know her. Uh, a conventional showbiz lefty for most of her life, except that at a certain point she grasped the jig was up for Western civilization. And once you see that, it's hard to unsee it and it weighs heavy on you. And to be honest, I think that's what's stressful, whether you do shows like this or you don't do shows like this. You all know, I think I've said it uh, several times before, I may even have put it in a book, but the, the moment for me was about six months after 9-11, so that's 20 years ago now. be the spring of 2002, I was in Vienna, uh, and I happened to be uh, waiting for someone, and there was a maternity shop across the street, and I noticed that everyone uh, going in and out of the maternity <laughs> shop seemed to be... Muslim, and I didn't see many uh, what we would regard as ethnic Austrians, Aryans, as I believe they used to be called, uh, going into that maternity shop. And that's what prompted the demographic thesis of America alone, the fact that the races that built the modern world, the nations that built the modern world, uh, are going out of business. It's it's not it's it's simply a fact. It's accelerated in the last couple of years because uh, either because of uh, oh I don't think you're allowed. Can you say oh yeah this isn't regulated by Ofcom so I might even be able to suggest that it's got something to do with those COVID vaccines. But anyway, the um, fertility rate has uh, hit the skids. Uh, it's uh, accelerated its decline even more in the last couple of years. So the people of what we used to call Christendom are going out of business. Then we have the Christen part of Christendom itself. And it wasn't long after that business in Vienna that I had a, um, a discussion at some big international Beano with various senior Eurocrats. I think it was the chief of staff to Chris Patton, who was Britain's European commissioner at the time, various big shots like that. 
And they were all using the phrase post-Christian Europe. And I'd only ever heard the phrase post-Christian Europe used by American conservatives as, an ex as, a, ex as, uh, as a pejorative expression. They thought post-Christian Europe was a bad thing. And it was slightly weird to hear big-shot Europeans talking about post-Christian Europe as if it was the most natural and desirable thing in the world. So we have... You know, so Western civilization no longer depends on ethnic Westerners. It no longer depends on the, uh, the, the faith that built uh, Christendom and that built uh, the West. Uh, so people say, oh, well, it's about value. So anybody can come here. Uh, it's anybody can set foot in Europe or in North America and simply by setting foot on the soil of North America or the soil of Europe, they will become uh, functioning citizens of Western democracies uh, exemplified by Western values. Have you been following the news the last three years? All the values, the so-called Western values have been thrown away. Freedom of speech, freedom of movement, freedom of association, all the core Western liberties tossed aside. And in America, even the core shibboleth. Self-government, uh, responsible government, democracy, whatever term you prefer to use. So that we just saw a few weeks ago that even though there are over 3,000 counties in the United States, it's the same handful, such as this uh, famous county in Arizona, Maricopa County. It's the, fa it's the same handful of counties that get to screw up the elections every two years. So th that's the big picture. Big picture. Uh, what is seen cannot be unseen. What is known cannot be unknown. And that, alas, is the really stressful part of uh, all this. Uh, anyway, I've uh, sorry about that. I've been away a long time, uh, and uh, uh, there's uh, that's too much to. Uh, <laughs> That's too long an intro. Let's get to your questions. Frank Gallenstein said, do you mind if I just have a glass of water? Uh, some of these pills uh, do uh, have weird effects on my voice. I uh, hope you don't hope you don't mind me taking a swallow of water there. There is, I think there's a button here I could press to mute that, uh, but I can't find it. Uh, Frank says, Frank Gallenstein or Gallenstein says, Mark, hope it's you today. And regardless, I hope you're feeling better. We have missed your viewpoints and irreverent humor, as Rush used to say. Speaking of Rush, he used to have a stack of stuff he used as show prep. That stack of stuff made it apparent he was a reader of the Wall Street Journal editorial page, and if I'm not mistaken, a close friend of a few of the editorial columnists. Um are you a frequent reader of the Wall Street Journal editorial page? And if so, are there some columnist viewpoints you've taken a particular liking to? If not, do you have other editorial pages you frequent? Frank, this is a charming question. It's like it came out of the mists of time uh, from around 1998. Very, very sweet and endearing in that respect. I'll tell you, Frank, I'll tell you something about the stack of stuff because I guest hosted for Rush for 15 years and loved doing it. And I can tell you that the stuff that is in the stack of stuff uh, betrays no clue that 
uh, Rush is a particular reader of that publication. The Stack of Stuff was started by my uh, late friend, dear friend, guy I, I miss an awful lot. He had a huge, great honking laugh, and I used to love it if I'd say <laughs> something that would just make, because he'd be on the other side of the glass, and it would just make him explode <laughs> in my earphones with that great big honking laugh of his. And, um, and Kit Carson was the chap who uh, used to, he, he told me all about it one day. I mean, this is going back 30 years. He, 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 at one point, he was, he was hired, he was the first person hired to help Rush because Rush was getting so much fan mail. So he was basically the mailroom guy who went through all the mail that Rush got and sorted out the crazy stuff from the sane stuff. And uh, then one day, he was just sort of thinking, he was in quite enjoying it, but he, was, he wanted to be an actor on Broadway. He came from a great acting family. His uncle was uh, Jack Carson, uh, whom you can... Uh, we played him on this show, I think, duetting with Frank Sinatra on uh, some song or other uh, a few weeks back. Anyway, Kit wanted to be an actor, and uh, so he was always thinking... So he, was, he wanted, didn't really want to be a mailroom boy forever, so... One morning, he looked at the papers and he found six kind of amusing little stories that he cut out and he gave them to Rush. And Rush looked through them and he used four of them in the course of the show. And um, at the end of the show, Rush said, oh, that was great. Have you got any more stuff like that? And so Kit took to doing that every day and that eventually developed into the stack of stuff. And then you know, what happened, uh, Mr. Snurdly contributed his own sack of stuff, and then Kit and Snurdly would write uh, lines on the back. Sometimes, you know, they were just like quips, usable gags, uh, reactions that you could use or not use. And then when I did the show, we'd have uh, Kit stack, and we'd have Snurdly stack, and couple of other people from my end of things would uh, chip in with the stack, uh, some of whom you know, like uh, Andrew Lawton and Laura Rosen Cohen. And so that's how the stack of stuff... So I don't think it said anything about uh, how Rush uh, Rush's reading habits or not. Now, as regards the Wall Street Journal edit... And this is why I said it was like a question... I don't think editorial pages, I did very well out of editorial pages. You know, my column uh, appeared Mondays and Thursdays, and the newspaper starts noticing it sells more copies on Mondays and Thursdays, so they think we better keep this guy, because otherwise our sales will dip. And that's how it used to be in Fleet Street, and certainly in, in Toronto, and other competitive newspaper markets. I don't think it's like that anymore now. I don't look at, I don't open up the New York Times and think, oh, look, there's Thomas Friedman and there's Maureen Dowd. I wonder which ones of them I'm going to read. Um, and as for the Wall Street Journal, I'll, I'll say this. I have, uh, you know, friends at the Wall Street Journal. I used to contribute to the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Uh, in fact, at one point they were eager to... Bob Bartley, who was the great editor there for 30 years, um, he, uh, he he wanted to meet me, so he arranged a lunch and uh, I, I, for the next time I was in New York. And I was in New York. I couldn't understand why we were having this lunch on a Saturday. And, you know, Bob Bartley was saying, oh, I've had to drive in from the Hamptons or <laughs> wherever his weekend place was. And it turned out my uh, 
my assistant had had completely confused the dates and given them this Saturday for my availability. So they were all in a bad mood because they'd had to drive back into the city on a Saturday to have lunch uh, with me. But I, Bob Bartley was an enormously decent man. They were all very Max Boot, uh, who's gone a little, uh, he went a little anti-Trump. He went a little, uh, you remember Katie Hopkins called him a cockwomble and all that. So he's, he's a post-Republican now. You, you know, he's, he's not where he was when I knew him. But they were all decent and affable at the time. But I, I understood that they had a reductive view of what conservatism was to me. Bob Bartley was quite upfront about it. He, uh, he's, fam- he, he's known for weird absolutisms. Uh, he said, I, uh, he said, the nation state is finished. It's a weird, that's a weird thing for an American editorial uh, colossus to be saying in the 90s. So he thought uh, the European Union was the future and a similar version on the North American continent like NAFTA or something uh, even beyond NAFTA was also necessary. And he was in favor of a constitutional amendment. There shall be open borders. And that goes back a long way. In the 1980s, his solution to immigration was, quote, there shall be open borders. Now, this is perhaps the most effective conservative editor most influential conservative editor of his generation. There shall be open borders and the nation state is finished. Uh, Those two statements are not unconnected. As I said, he was a very decent man, but he had a, what I think of as a reductive view of the world in that um, People, economics people, think that people think of themselves in economic terms, and they don't. So from the point of view of the Western open borders fanatic, oh, well, we, need, uh, we, we need taxi drivers, we need bus drivers, we need nurses. Uh, none of this is necessarily true, actually. The other pleasant aspect of the last two weeks is it's been nice to be treated in a medical system that attracts nurses from first world countries. It's very interesting to me. I've been doted on almost exclusively by French nurses. Uh, and if it isn't a French nurse, it's a nurse from somewhere nearby, such as Portugal or Italy. Uh, the, the, the National Health Service in the UK doesn't attract nurses from first world countries. Uh, so I don't buy all this. Oh, we need taxi drivers and we need nurses in, in part because, you know, so we, have, oh, we need uh, we need bus drivers. So let's bring over some bus drivers from Somalia or Sudan. Uh, nobody thinks of himself as a bus driver. That's just what he happens to do. Or if it's the Yorkshire mill towns, they bring over uh, all these uh, Muslims from the Indian subcontinent who work in the mills and the mills close anyway uh, and the uh, the Muslims remain so you have no mills and you have no but the madrasas and mosques survive so I thought it was a reductive view of the world homo economicus uh, and as I said at that lunch if I recall correctly I think culture trumps economics
so I didn't feel I was happy to contribute uh, as and when to the Wall Street Journal, but I, I got the feeling it would become a, a difficult relationship if you ever wanted to contest uh, Bob Bartley's uh, fundamentalist views on things like the obsolescence of the nation state and uh, and the need for open borders. But as I say, he was a very likable fellow. Uh, thank you for that. Interesting uh, first question. Don't know quite where it came from. Tom Lewis says, Mark, as my favorite and most accurate prognosticator, what are your instincts on Elon Musk? Well, I'm not a great one for uh, putting all, you know, one of the reasons Trump is in a mess with Kanye West, for example, is because the minute Kanye, going back two, three, four, five years, whatever it is now, the minute, whenever it was Kanye first said something mildly approving of Trump, the desperation of the right, uh, because some hipster had uh, uh, had finally said something nice about one of their guys, you know, because, you know, who who liked George W. Bush? It was uh, the Oak Ridge Boys, or one of the Oak Ridge Boys, I think. I never did find out. Uh, I think, oh, I think I did find out which Oak Ridge Boy it was, because I think we got an email from him at one point. But he, you know, uh, th- that's the, uh, I made a joke about this, the, the, um, the Encyclopedia of Conservative uh, Personalities, and it's a it's a double side, single sheet of paper, double printed only on one side, and it's got the Oak Ridge Boy and Pat Boone and maybe one or other. so people go. People are desperate for this, and I understand that. And uh, the. The, the problem, Veronica, who is uh, the doyen of uh, the Mark Stein Club in uh, His Majesty's realm of New Zealand, and Veronica uh, rightly points out uh, that uh, conservatism is generally a low-status thing. All the stuff I get, people uh, occasionally criticise me for doing on this website, like poetry or whatever. Uh, you, I, I talked about this quite openly on on Rush. I got nothing against country music. I like country music, but you can't have um, you th- this parodic way. Uh, I won't mention his name, but you know, a certain rather sophisticated urban New Yorker. Uh, who does this almost exaggeratedly enthusiastic thing for uh, country music and bar. He's a guy with a private plane who dines in the most exclusive restaurants. And he's always, you know, oh, conservatism is country music and barbecue and all the rest of it. There's no point playing to caricature like that. As Veronica points out, you know, conservatism is regarded as low status. So the minute you're wealthy enough to move to a, uh, you know, to a Tony suburb, uh, you get very conflicted about identifying as a conservative because it's regarded as a, uh, as a low, uh, a low status activity. You know, class still explains more things than anybody else. And so that's what happened with, with uh, Kanye, the fact that Kanye's hip 
the fact that he's a hepcat uh, made uh, people uh, made people absolutely uh, fawn on him. In, he's, in fact, he's not a coherent philosophical person at all. So for Trump to wind up having dinner with him is probably not a good idea, and it doesn't appear to have uh, worked out well for Trump. But people are so, you know, people love Pat Boone and they love the Oak Ridge Boys, but they they just... You know, when you're excluded from every aspect of the culture, you get desperate. Now, uh, Elon Musk is someone who is operating at a high point, at a high status, or was, in the culture. And the thing about it is he's, he's a bit like my lefty actress friend. He's from South Africa. And so his view of, uh, you know, identity politics and where it can go is uh, framed from a completely different perspective from the average American uh, liberal billionaire uh, type. And, and so he's coming at it from a different point of view. Now, whether that is enough to keep him there, because he must be uh, coming to appreciate how lonely it is. He's got everybody out to get him. Uh, he's had to ban from Twitter people who are revealing the real-time movements of his aircraft, obviously in hopes that someone will shoot him out of the sky. He's got the European Union. This guy, Thierry, what's he called, Thierry? Uh, we had a clip of him on the show threatening Elon Musk. You know, when when, when uh, he bought Twitter and said the bird has flown or whatever, he said the bird flies free or whatever. And this guy, this European Union bureaucrat, nobody's ever heard of. You can't go anywhere and vote him out. And he just said, uh, we will decide Thierry somebody. He's either Monsieur Thierry or he's Thierry somebody, Thierry Non de Fami, I can't remember his name now, uh, medication, sorry about that, and he goes, um, we will, uh, we will, we in the European Union, the European Commission, uh, we will decide where your bird flies. Uh, so he's got a lot of forces ranged against him, I'm not going to I'm not going to put all my eggs in Elon Musk's basket. The problem is way bigger than that. The fact that we all talk about Elon Musk emphasizes how lonely we are. We're the wallflower at the school dance, and one of the cool kids has looked at us, glanced our way. He hasn't actually come and asked us for a dance. And, you know, chances are he doesn't particularly want to go and dance with us. But he's, but as I said, because of his background, he, he I will tell you something else he knows. You know, uh, I've, I've talked about this before, that no one would have bet on the South Africa, on the Afrikaners, the white Afrikaners in South Africa, folding the way they did 30 years ago. You wouldn't have bet on that. 67, if you go back, whatever it is now, 74 years, is it? Uh, when they set up the apartheid regime, they were demographically competitive, or so they thought. So they thought they had the numbers to hold the black man in check. And it turned out they didn't. 
And uh, so they under, if you're a, uh, a white South African, you understand how the demographic arithmetic uh, can turn against you very fast. So there's things that he understands from his particular perspective uh, that, that other people don't. And that's what makes him interesting. But he's going to have to have incredible reserves of strength uh, and that in itself can be terribly stressful. Robert Meador says, uh, much has been written about Sam Brinton. Now, do you know Sam Brinton? He's an or he, she, they. They, I think, are non-binary. Um, Joe Biden appointed them, them to the administration. <laughs> uh, we did something on, there was a, there, there was, a picture of Admiral Levine, the first transgender four-star admiral in American history. It's great, isn't it? Fantastic. Should, should be a national holiday just for that. Um, so anyway, there was a picture of them uh, somewhere or other uh, with uh, Admiral Levine and then the first uh, non-binary uh, uh, administration official uh, uh, very fetching, uh, very trim little, looks lovely in nice little pencil skirt with uh, her radioactive waist. Uh, just just lovely. Anyway, Sam Brinton apparently has this habit of stealing your luggage from the baggage carousel at American airports and so has now been forced to depart the administration. Uh, and Robert Meader says, much has been written about Sam Brinton, but nowhere have I read anything about his. You mean, you mean there, there, come on, not having any of this misgendering, uh, mispronouning, whatever it is, about their qualifications to work with nuclear power and nuclear waste. Progressives claim they want rule by experts, but they are either lying or incapable of recognizing expertise. Your thoughts? Oh, come on. You know my thoughts on this, Robert. I've said for years now that uh, expertise is subordinate to ideological purity. You know that is true. There's a line of mine that become quite well known. I can't remember when I first used it. Now, uh, soon the planes will start dropping from the skies because this stuff started just at universities. And the conservatives, who are the, have really cost us our civilization, complacent conservatives have cost us our civilizations. Oh, well, this is, this is just This is just on campus. People know it's rubbish and they just pay lip service and they forget about it the minute they leave campus. And even on campus, it's just with this wacky fringe stuff like gender studies and the like. It doesn't really mean anything in real disciplines. Uh, okay, well, then all those people graduated from those campuses and they took all the bollocks with them into the wider world and it established itself in the places you'd expect it to, broadcasting and the media and so forth. And then it established itself in corporations. Uh, and then it went beyond that. Um, so again, the, you know, Sam Brinton was in the administration because he's a bloke in a skirt. That's his qualification. If you think they're in the least bit interested about what he knows about nuclear waste, uh, <laughs> 
you're missing the point. Uh, these, this is basically affirmative action on steroids. People are hired for because, oh, we want an administration that looks like America. Not like the America you might see if you were walking around a small town in Idaho, but the America you might see if you were on the beach at Fire Island or whatever. This is, uh, so that's why, that's the beginning and end of why he, she, they are in the administration. Because he's a bloke in a, uh, a skirt. And that, uh, and so now we're seeing what happened in the campuses is spread out into the media, spread out into corporations. And as I said, my line, been using it for a decade or whatever, uh, eventually they'll be hiring pilots because they're non-binary and the planes will be dropping out of the sky. I'll give you two examples. Um, there's a lady in Norway, a feminist, who's facing three years in jail because she made the statement that a man cannot be a lesbian. A lot of men are saying they're non-binary or they're identifying as women, but they're keeping the old meat and two veg so they can still stick it to the chicks when they're put in a woman's prison. And uh, a Norwegian, and so and so lesbians, and a lot of lesbians become lesbian because they want to get away from the whole penis thing, and so they have no desire to date a woman with a penis, and they're being told that they're transphobic. If you're a lesbian and you don't want to date, this is a beautiful-looking lesbian here, beautiful-looking lesbian hung like a stallion. And you're totally transphobic if you say you're a lesbian and you don't want to uh, date this lesbian who just happens to be packing a little extra. And so because this Norwegian woman said uh, uh, that a man, cannot be a, le a man cannot be a lesbian, that's the words she used. And she's looking at three years in jail. That's example number one. The Cambridge Dictionary has now redefined the word woman. Now, it's, it's the Cambridge Dictionary, so it's not quite as big as the Oxford Dictionary, but it's pretty big up there on the influential dictionary front. They, they've now redefined a woman so that it is no longer merely just a biological female, but a person who chooses to identify as a woman, regardless of uh, the sex they were assigned at birth. Now, you know, that's, that's rubbish. They're basically saying they've redefined woman to being a woman or a man. But, but this, this, is, this is what... This, it's never been about, when, when you say rule by experts, it's never been about that. It's always been the subordination of expert knowledge to political attitude, Robert. That is completely uh, consistent all the way. Um, 
let's uh, let's have a little let's have a little break from all this uh, this stuff and actually remember a decent man, uh, squadron leader George Leonard Johnson, MBE, DFM. Uh, that's a member of the Order of the British Empire, Distinguished Flying Medal for you non-Commonwealth types. Uh, Squadron Leader George Leonard Johnson, MBE DFM. He was known to all the men with whom he served as Johnny Johnson. He died a week ago, had a tough start in life. His mum died when he was three. He grew up poor in a tied cottage. And when war broke out, he applied to the RAF to be a navigator, but they thought he had the makings of a pilot. And by 1943, he was part of 617 Squadron. There was a time not so long ago when every schoolboy would have known what that number meant. The Dam Busters, the daring and innovative raid to cripple... Germany's industrial heartland using Barnes Wallace's uh, specially designed bouncing bombs. Johnny Johnson got the toughest dam, the Sorper Dam, a huge earthen affair, difficult to breach and uh, requiring an entirely different approach. They had to fly very low over the village, right over uh, the church steeple, just a few feet above it. And then along the dam wall and drop the bomb dead in the center from where it would roll down the wall and explode at the right uh, point. Not easy to do. Not easy. Only on the 10th run over the village did Johnny Johnson decide to release the bomb. It blew off part of the dam, but unlike the Ada and the Mona dams, it was not a total breach. Uh, Nevertheless... Uh, Johnny Johnson had a good war and retired from the RAF as squadron leader in 1962. He became a school teacher and a conservative councillor in Torquay, and he outlived every one of his comrades from 617 Squadron. Dead at 101, Johnny Johnson, the last dambuster.
To mark the passing of the last member of 617 Squadron, Johnny Johnson, the magnificent Dam Busters March by Eric Coates, played by the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Sir Charles Groves. The men, the mission, the movie, the music, all Britain at its best from the day before yesterday, yet all lost. Let's get back to your questions. Uh, what we let's see what we we got here. Uh, John Fatchy says, since Hillary Clinton received the Comey defense strategy of lack of intention, the West has lost its proverbial shirt. I do not attribute the following events as accidental nor as unintentional. COVID nineteen. COVID-19 vaccination fallout, Brittany Griner caught smuggling drugs into Russia. I see all newsworthy global events as intentional. As with natural disasters, it is obvious when they are not intentional. Uh, Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's a general lack of uh, trust that, you know, not everyone, but, you know, a certain percentage of the population. May, I mean, every, there's a sort of paranoia now. It's like uh, uh, the famous line of Nixon when uh, uh, in, he was sitting in the Oval Office and uh, somebody walks in and says to him, uh, J. Edgar Hoover died uh, last night. And Nixon stroked his chin and goes, hmm, I wonder what he meant by that. Uh, You know, that every event has a purpose. And it's a reasonable approach when nothing actually makes sense. It doesn't matter what you... Oh, I tell you what, the, the first priority after we've totally crippled the global economy by our response to the coronavirus is to then further cripple it by, for example, uh, cracking down on the use of peat from peat bogs in Ireland, destroying Irish farming, uh, destroying Dutch farming. Yeah, let's uh, we've, we've disrupted the supply chain, so let's try and disrupt it even uh, further. Um, let's uh, let's let's. Uh, impose sanctions on Russia that totally uh, wind up with European grannies freezing to death. Let's uh, let's uh, accelerate uh, the uh, our plans for net zero. Even though I think it's in the Nether, is it in the Netherlands or Belgium this week? Uh, they've now put the prices up for charging your electric vehicle, so it actually costs more to charge your electric vehicle uh, than it does to gas up your car. Um, we now know they're rushing into development fast charging stations that will only take 20 minutes. Uh, to an hour to charge your car. You know, if you've ever stood there pumping gas and they have these, one thing I quite uh, like about other countries like France, the, uh, the the gas pumps go quite quickly. There's these, I don't know why, So is, is it something to do with the ethanol? Somebody told me there's a reason why American gas pumps run slowly. I can't remember what it is now, but... Um, 
If you think that's slow, standing just there for the three, four, five minutes it takes to fill up your car, you think about that, the 20 minutes uh, to an hour of the fast-charging electric cars. These things are, what they're doing to us is intentional. They're teaching us, they're determined, I think in part because they know everything's wrecked. And they're teaching us, and it doesn't, it's beyond, way beyond, oh, I'm a conservative, I'm, uh, I'm not a conservative, I'm uh, right-wing, you're left-wing, or it's way beyond any of that, because they all agree on this crap, <clears throat> which makes it very difficult to vote your way. Or, for example, another, uh, another, why are they letting in, why are they, why since 2020, have they told us that uh, the state has the power to um, regulate every aspect of your life so it can determine how many people you can have round your house for Christmas dinner, uh, as states did in Christmas uh, 2020. And uh, 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 the state has the power to do that in the interests of not spreading the coronavirus. But at the same time, we have open borders. Uh, take those Albanians arriving, thousand Albanians a night on the southern shore of England. What is it about membership of the European Court of Human Rights that is so valuable to the United Kingdom that it's worth letting 10% of the population of Albania move to the United Kingdom? Nobody asks the... I'm so... Oh, calm, 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 calm. I'm not actually wired up at the moment, but I can see when, it, when I was, uh, and the uh, numbers would be shooting up into the red zone, blah, blah, blah. Uh, what there, there is, we don't talk about the right things. You know, we have this stupid... Or 90% of political coverage is about the horse race. And the horse race isn't worth it because the horses are completely undistinguished. There's... That's not the point of it. The, the election night when the winner is declared, or three months after election night, if you happen to be American... But election night is not the end of politics. That's the beginning of politics, supposedly. We just talk about all this horse race stuff, the polls, you know, who's in, who's out. The question is, what are you going to do? Because every single Western nation, with one or two exceptions, is, is, is falling apart right now. It's being destroyed. It won't be Western in any recognizable sense in 20 years time so do you want to talk about something that matters do you want to do pitiful oh, i'm kevin mccarthy and i'm going to read out the u.s constitution on the floor or we're going to have it read by mass members of congress so we'll break it all up and it'll go on a lot longer because we'll get each of them to do a couple of lines apiece you know what do you want what's do you, do you, as I said, the Cambridge Dictionary has just said redefined a woman to mean uh, a woman and a man can be a woman. That's Orwell. That's Orwell 101. When you actually render language meaningless and therefore put a real discussion of, what, of anything that matters 
beyond the possibilities, beyond the possibilities, because you you've you you know you know Orwell had the war is peace and all the rest of it, but even Orwell didn't think to go for woman is man. You know, in other words, even Orwell, as great as his vision was, there were limitations. There were limitations uh, to it. Ian says, hi, Mark. In the UK, we're apparently on course for a Labour supermajority <laughs> at the next election. Given the utter uselessness of the Tories, I can believe it. How bad will it get under a Keir Starmer supermajority government? Will it make the Blair government look moderate by comparison? More than all that, though, will we ever get a serious government led by serious people who deal with the entrenched problems in the country? Well, look, if it's going to be a Keir Starmer supermajority, that's on the crap wanker Tories who've wrecked everything there is to wreck in the United Kingdom over the last 12 years. Starting with, you know, oh, it's great, isn't it? We're so diverse in the Tories. We've got men... Uh, we've got women, uh, we've got uh, that fat Billy Bunter bloke, and uh, what was his name? Can't remember. It's like he was never there. Now, Boris Johnson, Billy Bunter, and then we've got the Hurry Jamsat Ram Singh to Billy Bunter, Rishi Sunak. That's a, <laughs> a very cobwebbed cultural reference for British and Commonwealth uh, readers of whatever it was, a century ago. But that's basically what he... I mean, it doesn't really matter. They all sound like David Cameron. And they haven't done anything. And they've wrecked everything. So it's not even worth worrying about what Keir... Keir Starmer will wreck all... But the reason he's wrecked everything... Uh, the, the reason he'll wreck things even more is because the Tories have done what they did for the last... What the hell do you like about the Tories, the post-2010 Tories? And what the hell do you like about them? They introduced gay marriage uh, in, because, as David Cameron said, he was asked uh, why he was introducing uh, same-sex marriage despite being a conservative. He said it's not... Despite being a conservative, it's because I'm a conservative. Um, oh, well, whoop de doo It would have happened anyway, like it happened everywhere else in the West. But what, ha but what have they done? You know, it's to, to get worried about what... You know, Keir Starmer is going to have his work cut out to do what Rishi Sunak's doing. Rishi Sunak's letting in a thousand... Albanians a night. Why? Why? That's just on the Tory watch. It only started on Boris bloody Johnson's watch. Fat Blair as... Uh, I, f I forget who came up with that name for him. Fat Blair, but it's right. You know, what is it about UK membership of the European Court of Human Rights that makes it worth letting in a thousand Albanians a night. The Tories are in it. Don't get ahead of yourself, Ian. Start worrying about what Keir Storm... Rishi Sunak is like all these guys. They don't seem like... You know, they don't seem like people from anywhere now. It's like uh, the area codes we have in the United States. You know, I'm... In uh, New Hampshire, uh, which is uh, 603. And uh, then if you're a Vermonter, that's uh, 802. 
and if you go over the border and you wind up in Montreal, that's 514. And that's the thing. That's how it used to be with telephones. Uh, that you, oh, 603, oh, he's in New Hampshire, 802, he's in Vermont, 514, he's in Montreal. And uh, now all these guys are like from 1-800-anywhere. They're completely into the kind of people you see standing next to Ursula von der Leyen at these Euro summits, G7, G20. They could be from anywhere, you know. Uh, they're all completely interchangeable. Justin could just as easily be the president of France and Emmanuel Macron could uh, just as uh, easily be the chancellor of Germany. And they're all completely interchangeable. They're like 1-800 prime ministers. Uh, Rishi Sunak's from anywhere. I, nobody knows. Okay, so he's richer than the king. What did he do? Did he invent the Ford Model T and become richer than the king by selling millions of automobiles to the working men and women of the world? No, he became a billionaire in some mysterious, non-primary, wealth-creating way nobody can explain to you. Uh, and they're all like that now. This like little, they're all the same. They have different pigmentations. You know, like Rishi and Justin do not have the same skin color. Justin's uh, is much darker than Rishi's when he's dressing up. And nobody, these, these people could come from, come from everywhere and nowhere. Don't worry about Keir Starmer. The problem is, the problem is that the, 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 it's, you're not looking at it right. The Tories have buggered everything there is to bugger. And the question to ask is, why? What do you get from that? What do you get from saying, oh, well, we can't let Labour in, uh, so we're going to vote for Tories that believe in open borders, Tories that believe in net zero, Tories that, that are just as scared and craven about telling you what a woman is as Keir Starmer, so that all the heavy lifting on that has to be done by J.K. Rowling. Uh, getting too excited. Uh, <laughs> Pete Procopio says, Hello, Mark. Hope you've rejoined the land of the living. Uh, well, I'm in France. <laughs> Don't know whether you'd call it that. Just wanted to tell you I'm grateful for the work you do these last few years, especially have been trying, to say the least. And while I'm certainly not happy with the cultural decline displayed daily, I am certainly grateful for being here to possibly be part of turning it around. I'm grateful for the blessings bestowed upon me, for my family and friends. Just feeling grateful today. Merry Christmas, everyone. Oh, what a what a nice uh, what a nice uh, thought that is. That's uh, that's that's uh, a, a nice. Uh, uh, thing uh, to uh, to say. Well, there was one question I wanted to. Where did I put this now? I've, uh, I can't remember. I can't see where it's gone. Where has it gone? Um, uh, uh, oh, uh, Sharon. Oh, yeah, this is the one. Sharon says, welcome back, Mark. Canada has been in the news lately because of the rapid expansion of the medical assistance in death program made. 
It is terrifying to me how many people have already taken the government up on their offer of euthanasia and now they want to expand to children and even babies. How can we fight back against this horrible anti-human program? You've quoted Margaret Thatcher many times about how there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program. How can we get rid of this evil? George Pereira adds... Why has MAID taken such hold of the deranged Dominion? Who are the bureaucrats administering such an evil program? What kind of training? Do they get bonus money, awards, recognition from the Mammy Singer? What kind of reward could possibly convince a normal Canadian to become part of such monstrous and despicable evil. Where is the church? On a more practical note, doesn't such a program cost more and use more resources than it would to simply give Canadian citizens the help they need? Except for killing Canadians faster than the jab, what is the point of such a program? Well, you know, when, when I did The Prisoner of Windsor a couple of summers ago, we had a thing toward the end of that about so-called death with dignity. It is a thing. Uh, and it is a thing with great appeal uh, to people around the Western world. And uh, it's a system. And the point of view of a, the point of a system is it anesthetizes the people in the system from the questions uh, you ask, George, who are the bureaucrats administering such an evil program? If it's a program, it's not really evil, is it? You know, people often miss. I don't do Holocaust comparisons because it's in poor taste. But I do occasionally make this point about the Holocaust, that... The, an aspect of it that people forget is it is it was a system. It was very German in that respect. It was a bureaucracy, and the Germans were the masters of bureaucracy. And so the question is then, if you design a bureaucracy for the administration of mass murder, is it to the German mind mass murder, or is it just another bureaucracy? Uh, that's, that, that was the great uh, insight of that system, that if you make it bureaucratic and system-like, if you make it uh, an evil program, as George puts it, it's the program thing that people, the program bit that people fall in with, and the evil that they don't see. Now, in the Western world, it's clear we have a lot of very unhappy people. Some people are particularly unhappy. If you look at uh, America, um, I believe the suicide rate for men is uh, something like four to five times that of women. There are a lot of unhappy men out there because men have become the main victims of both economic and social changes. So that many men-type jobs in manufacturing have diminished and vanished in many parts of the country and women type jobs in cubicles processing your 1099 and your w8 have increased so a lot of men lead 
unhappy lives of quiet despair and commit suicide at an increasing rate. Um, I think you can likewise see the, uh, the, the, the dismantling of centuries-old social norms is partly behind the desire of uh, so many girls to transition and to cut their breasts off uh, mutilate themselves and uh, decide they're boys. There are a lot of unhappy people there uh, around. So if there are a lot of unhappy people around and they're not perhaps as eager to transition to eating insects as you would like, then uh, having systems designed to make it easier for them to choose death would seem uh, to a certain type of mind the humane way to go. There is despair and emptiness. You know, I've been uh, lying in bed, plugged up to machines, uh, and you, you, you start to think about the bigger aspects of life. And that is one, uh, that is one of the biggest that... Uh, it would be unreasonable for interventionist, a generally interventionist government not to respond to. Once you, uh, don't forget from uh, the point of view of modern man, you know, traditionally uh, a human being lives his life as a part of a compact with the past and the future, and the hereafter. That's why uh, people do all kinds of things, like planting trees they won't live, see to grow to their full height, or you know, uh, stonemasons beginning laying the foundation of a cathedral that it will be left to their sons and grandsons to complete in uh, in in the medi in the me in medieval Europe. Uh, having families. These are all things you do because you believe in a transcendent meaning to life. Now, when you don't believe in a transcendent meaning, uh, there's nothing left but the self. So uh, what matters is self-expression. So a man can wake up one morning, like Sam Brinton, he wakes up and on Tuesdays he's... Uh, uh, he's feeling like he's a woman, but on Thursday he's feeling like a woman uh, who wants to grow a moustache. Self-expression is everything else, and in that, and in that, if that is the be-all and end-all of twenty-first-century life, then self-expression, the right to identify as a man, the right to identify as a woman the right to identify as a woman who's hung like a stallion, the right to identify as a woman with a handlebar moustache, then uh, the right to identify as a corpse is only a little further along that continuum. Self-identification is all. Uh, and that is seeing uh, its terrible logic play out in uh, my poor disastrous, deranged dominion that I will not be seeing uh, for the rest of 2022 uh, and maybe not for the first few weeks of 2023. Let's have a little more music before we close things out. As I said, 
I'm in France and stuck here a while yet, which means that over the next week, uh, I'm going to be hearing a lot of this song, which is about the most famous French Christmas carol around the world. I've always liked uh, this version by the great Tino Rossi. He is born, the heavenly child. Let oboes play and bagpipes sound. Il est né le divin enfant, joué au bois, résonné, musette. Il est né le divin enfant, chantant tous son avènement. Depuis plus de quatre mille ans, nous le promettaient les prophètes. Depuis plus de quatre mille ans, nous attendions cet heureux temps. Il est né le divin enfant, joué au bois, résonné, musette. Il est né le divin enfant, chantant tous son avènement. Une étable et son logement, un peu de paille et sa couchette, une étable et son logement, pour un Dieu quel abaissement. Il est né le divin enfant, joué au bois, résonné, musette, il est né le divin enfant, chantant tous son avènement. Partez au roi de l'Orient, venez vous unir à nos fêtes. Partez au roi de l'Orient, venez adorer cet enfant. Monsieur Rossi sold over 200 million records in his lifetime. That wasn't his biggest Christmas hit, uh, which would be Petit Père Noël, Little Father Christmas, which all on its own sold 30 million records. Uh, maybe we'll play that in the days ahead. Rick McGuinness's Saturday movie date, Stein Song of the Week, Tales for Our Time, all coming up at Stein Online. Stay safe, stay free, stay well.
Markstein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Markstein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. Rights Reserved.